You are listening to episode two of the So Driven podcast with our guest today, Luke Sutton. Luke was a professional cricketer for over 15 years, playing for a number of county cricket clubs, including Somerset and Lancashire. He captained at Derbyshire and now retired in the industry, he has set up his own talent management company. In November 2019, Luke released his raw and very honest autobiography, Back From The Edge. In this episode, I talk to Luke about his time as what he calls a journeyman pro cricketer. We discuss his absolute obsession with the need to succeed, leading his team in Derbyshire as their new captain, and his battle with extremes, working hard to be the best and playing hard with excessive drinking, which ultimately landed him in the Priory. Now a business owner and sports agent, he talks about his passion to help young stars not only succeed, but works to give them the support platform before they spiral into the same type of experiences he faced. You are listening to the So Driven Podcast with me, your host, Serena Dodd. Each week, we will dive deep into the inner workings of leaders. We will talk about their story, their challenges, their triumphs, and ultimately what drives that quest for success. Wanting to listen to a corporate type of approach to leadership? I'm afraid you're in the wrong place. Here, we like to be raw, a bit silly, progressive, and 100% unconventional. Luke Sutton, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's a total pleasure to meet you and to be chatting to you. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, well, tell me what you're up to at the moment. What's life like in lockdown? Golly, life in lockdown. I, I guess I've been through uh, maybe the roller coaster that lots of people have been through. I, I found, if I'm perfectly honest, the first week or so or two weeks just kind of really overwhelming. It was, uh, you know, it was we were talking about coronavirus and then suddenly it seemed to just escalate into really serious within sort of 72 hours and it had a really big impact on my business and, you know, and then just worrying about parents and just you know I think everything that everyone's gone through and then the uncertainty of everything but I just I do remember at the start of lockdown saying to my fiance you know I do think we'll learn a lot from this there'll be a lot of really important lessons because this is kind of going to put a spotlight on every area of our life in, in a way in this kind of way that we never imagined and and now I look back on lockdown I just I'm actually the things that have come out of it from business point of view, from having time with kids and partner and just, just resetting a little bit. I, I, I actually, there's so there's a lot of good that's come out of it, which I know sounds really strange thing to say. So tell me, I just want to start to talk to you about business. You were director and co-founder of Activate Management. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So actually, um, uh, Activate Management was born out of Activate Sports, which was founded in 2005 by myself and a, a friend of mine. Um, and at that time, we, we ran uh, holiday camps for kids. He was from a football coaching background and I, I was from a professional cricket background. And he came to me in 2004 and said, listen, why don't we set up a holiday camp? I'll do the football, you do the cricket. And, uh, and I was at a difficult time in my life and I was kind of like, yeah, OK, why not? And, uh, and then we just went for it. And it was all about holiday camps at that, that stage. And uh, we went from one camp to eight to 28 to uh, 135. And it just kept escalating and escalating. And, and, and that's where the business was born from. Uh, and still today, um, you know, we run about 
30% of our business is from kids' holiday camps. But then what came out of that when I finished playing professional cricket was I, I moved into management of sports stars and broadcasters and uh, I guess ta talent and brand management is the easiest way to describe it. So what you see now of Activate Management was still born out of us running holiday camps. It's still the same business. It's just we've opened up this talent management division and, and I, I love it. I, obviously, I was a professional sports person myself. So, you know, I, I know that world. And to be able, even in retirement, to, to have a hand in into elite performance is, uh, is something that really appeals to me. So is that your complete focus at the moment in terms of business? Uh, pretty much. I mean, we do, it's, you know, I d there's a range of different things we do in there now. I, I consult with brands and help them to understand how they can be more relevant within the sports industry um, and how they can activate certain sponsorships better. I do a lot of work within the publishing world um, where people, you know, sports stars are writing books or journalists are writing books. I help with that process. And, and I actually day-to-day -day manage some uh, personalities as well. So even though it's kind of, it is very focused on talent and brand management that within that range, that there's quite a lot of different things to, to be done from kind of helping someone get a new car to uh, publishing a book, you know, it can be, it can be quite a broad range. Yeah. And talking about that, you've got a relatively new book out called Back from the Edge. I've been really enjoying that. Very raw, very honest What's the situation with that at the moment? So the book came out in November last year and it was, it was a funny process because I've been, in, I'm very, you know, I do a lot within the publishing world, but this was my first book. And um, it was funny because all the bits of advice I'd ever given every author, you know, I kind of now were pointed at me and it was, it was ironic to see how many of them I ignored. Um, <laughs> But the book was the book was published in November last year, and um, and I didn't really know, it, you know, it is as as raw as it gets. I, I I would say, you know, it is brutally honest, and I wanted it to be brutally honest. Um, and I just didn't know at the time, you know, I wasn't a, a superstar cricketer. I was a, you know, I guess I was a journeyman pro. Um, I played for a long time and for, for some good teams, but I wasn't a superstar by any means so I just really didn't know what level of interest it would pick up and I, I, I did one interview with the Daily Telegraph which basically caught fire and suddenly that got people reading it and then then once someone read it and, and you know sort of read the subject matter and how raw it was I think that started moving and yeah and since then really even to today it was over six months you know, I'm still doing bits of promotion for it, I've, I've, but I've, I've got another book coming out in November, so it's going to move on to the, the next book. Um, but it's been a really amazing experience, I have to say, from writing the book to talking about it, to promoting it, just, just the whole thing has been, I, I, it's been wonderful for me. It takes a certain amount of vulnerability to come up with being able to be so raw. Yeah, and I, I you know, I, I think I just got to a point in my life where, um a lot of this stuff was was secret for me you know because i i i guess i i didn't i didn't carry shame that's that's not i you know i've not drunk for you know eight and a half years i i've processed you know my my shame and my guilt and everything like that but you know there's a there's a certain thing of coming out and telling people exactly how it was that that holds you back we're all we're all we all feel like that in lots of different ways 
but I definitely reached a point where I just, I wanted to be set free. You know, I wanted to kind of really say how it was, what happened and, and the process because, okay, my, my story, it was extreme. You know, my, my, my drinking and my mental health got to extremely poor levels, but that I felt like there are lots of things within it that people who haven't even reached that, those levels with drinking or mental health could still relate to. And I just wanted to throw it out there and go, you know, this is me, you know, and, um, and if you can relate to it, wonderful. But it, for me in that process, it was this kind of liberation, you know, it's like yeah. a, a kind of coming out process and going, look, this is me. There's nothing else to hide. I'm proud of it. I take responsibility and I kind of want to move forward. And there's something really great about that. Yeah, so I imagine it was quite a cathartic process, probably an emotional one, but quite cathartic at the same time. 100%, yeah. And I I remember the book, I I was, the book that's coming out in November, I'd started writing that one before this, the Back from the Edge, and and then I wasn't really feeling it. I just wasn't finding my flow with it. And my fiance said, look, why don't you write about your story? And so I contacted the publishers who had no idea about my story. And I said, oh, I'm thinking of writing a different book. And he was like, I thought we had you know, agreed on this other book. And I, and I said, yeah, but I, you know, I, just, I think it might be the right time. And he goes, all right, write, write the first chapter, send it to me, and I'll let you know. So I, I, basically, what is the first chapter of Back from the Edge? I, I wrote it, sent it off to him. And he texts me. I won't say exactly what he said, but it was along the lines of um, keep writing. And from that moment, I just, it was cathartic. It just poured out of me, you know, all of, of everything that I had felt and experienced, it just poured out of me. And it was, it was emotional and I cried a lot during writing it, but, but it was hugely cathartic. Well, going back probably a couple of decades now, you are most well known for your career as a successful cricketer. What started you off in cricket in the first place? Well, it's a really good question, actually, because... I was actually a swimmer. I, was, um, I went to Millfield School, which is a famous sports school, on a swimming scholarship. And um, I love swimming. You know, my dream was to swim in the Olympics. And, you know, that was all I ever talked about. And then when I went to Millfield, I kind of, I just discovered the social life a bit more. You know, I, I loved the, swimming is a lonely sport. You know, you're basically staring at the bottom of the pool training at five o'clock in the morning. And, you know, it's, it's, it's full on. And, um, I guess I, f- I discovered team sports and then um, and there was something about cricket, which was, there was kind of this Moorishness to it. It's like, which is the addict in me, I think that, you know, you could get a hundred runs and I was like, but I could get 120 runs, you know, or I could get one catch. I could get four catches. It was always, there was always like this Moorishness to it because it's such a statistical game. Um, and, and I, I was reasonably talented at it and I, and I just I fell in love with it really. And then swimming kind of got moved away and, and cricket just developed. And as I, as I went through school, I kind of just got better and better and, you know, and then I basically went straight into professional cricket when I left school. Yeah. You went through a series of county clubs and in 2011, you became captain of Derbyshire Cricket Club. What do you think was the hook that got you to that point of becoming captain? Um, well, I think, you know, you need, you need, a, you need an opportunity to be a leader as well. You know, you need to be whatever environment you're in, whether business or a professional team, there needs to be a space for a leader to stand up. And, uh, at that time at Derbyshire, our previous captain had left, had moved clubs. Um, 
but I guess by nature, I'd always been a, a leader, whether I was captain or not. I was, you know, I was a bit of a pain, to be honest. I, I, you know, I wanted to win. I wanted to drive people forward. I wanted to, I was relentless. I was, my intensity was off the scale at times, you know, and I was, I was ruthless about it. So I was a real kind of leader and, and um, uh, I wanted to really push forward. So that always put me in positions of potentially being captain. Um, and then I, I guess I was quite a deep thinker about the game. I, you know, I, I enjoyed the tactics of it and, and it gave me an opportunity to step in. And I, I think with, with leadership in, in professional sports teams, it's as much about how you play the game as you are tactically. I mean, cricket's a very tactical game, but you know, if, you, if you're an up and atom kind of leader, the way you play, that, that puts you in great stead as a, as a captain. And I was very much in that mold and, and, it, and it, it moved me into those positions. Yeah, you talk a lot in the book about success and what that looks like to you. What did it look like to you back then? What was so important about success? Yeah, winning. Just winning and being the winner, you know, being right, being, uh, I'm, you know, it's different phrases for basically saying the same thing, um, being on top, looking good. I was just obsessed with it. I was obsessed with winning and and everything that came with it. And it, it, it might sound a kind of sort of a really obvious thing to say because we, you play professional sport to win. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, the guys I manage now, I'm like, listen, you're here. You're not here for a tea party. You're here to win. That's what we do it for. However, for me, there was, it was very superficial. It was very superficial of what it looked like. So winning, in my mind, represented a status. And I needed that status to feel good about myself. So the winning side of it wasn't there's there's there are different elements to enjoying a win is it the status it gives you or is it the process that you've been to in order to achieve it for me it was at that time it was all about the status yeah. and it meant that my enjoyment of it was always very fleeting because it was like never enough so i'd have to move on to the next and the next but there was a process to to get you to that stage and you had been at Lancashire and you scored your first century there. I think you were still the highest scoring wicketkeeper. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then in 2011, you were back at Derbyshire and after three months, you became captain. But the head of the club, John Morris, left around the same time. What was that process like for you going back to Derbyshire, becoming captain and then having the head of the club leave? Um, yeah, it was, it was, a it was a pretty big year, but because I was also struggling personally, you know, I was really struggling with my mental health and my drinking. Um, but I, you know, I'd been at Lancashire before Derbyshire and in football terms, you know, Lancashire is a kind of Man United of cricket. Um, and Derbyshire was a much more, you know, lower division side, uh, not, not lower division, but it just a, a sm much smaller club. And so Coming back from Lancashire to Derbyshire, I guess I held the pedigree of having played for a long time at the, one of the biggest clubs in the country. And so I guess I was an immediate leader. I was also quite a bit older than a lot of the other guys. You know, I was 34, um, 33, 33, 34. And so I was already a kind of leader as such. And then, yeah, there was John left the club. Um, he was sacked in the middle of the season. And there was a difficult dynamic with some of the players and him and the club set up and yeah, I definitely needed to stand up hundred percent. They would, the, the club needed me to be captain, a coach, a leader, a, you know, a player. And, 
um, the truth was I, I was, I was doing my absolute best, but I was battling with my own demons and, um, it made for a tough year. I felt like during that year, I was just clinging on, you know, like just on a knife edge the whole time and all the time trying to portray this image of being strong and in control. And, um, cause I felt like that's what people wanted of me, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there personally. So I had this sort of pressure of wanting that I was creating my own head of, of what I felt I needed to deliver for people. And yet really I, I needed some help at that time. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who hasn't read the book, that's a big theme that runs through that period of your life and probably much earlier as well, but it came to the extreme at that time of this idea of punishment and reward and and sort of the work hard, play hard mentality. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, I developed that kind of work hard, play hard mentality and persona from when I left school, really. You know, and, and it's not, the thing I always say to people, it's not uncommon. You know, we, a lot of people go to the pub at the end of a, a difficult you know a big working week and blow off steam there's nothing wrong with that I think for me it just became it became really extreme so you know I would um you know I just developed in, and it's part of being a leader you know you, you and in and old school professional sports team and sort of testosterone driven fake machoism celebrated it you know that was like what real men look like I mean I honestly I think it's total nonsense it's not what real men look like um it's just I thought that and you know, I would train to an extreme level and then I would party to an extreme level. And when I was younger and I was, I was able to control it a bit better, it was okay. But just over time, and obviously there's some key things that happened to me, I just lost control of it. And my partying became more extreme, which meant I'd have to work harder to sort of purge myself, like that reward and punishment, reward and punishment. And and then I, you know, my behavior whilst I was, you know, on, on nights out would just, I'd feel a real shame about it and, and a deep shame. And I'd have to purge myself in training. And I guess in 2011, it just, it reached the crescendo, you know, where I was, everything was just becoming so unmanageable. And, um, you know, by the time I got to the end of that season, I just, you know, I felt like I was holding on and then I just, I couldn't hold on any longer. I let go and... I was just like, I can't, I can't keep pretending. I, I, I gave up on myself and um, yeah. And, and then I eventually ended up in the Priory. Did you find that your team was responding to sort of extremes? Did they talk to you about it or were they just seeing you more as that leader going into, into that year? No, I think they saw me as that leader because I, I could you know, I, anyone who struggles with these sorts of problems, you're, you're a master at hiding it. You know, you, you, the addicts are geniuses at hiding it in whatever addiction because they have to. That's how they survive. So I think they very much saw me as a leader. And, and the fact was I, I could, I would, I'd be there on time for training the next day. I'd be first at the queue. I'd be on it. I'd, you know, I would, I'd push myself until I, you know, I was physically sick. I, you know, I, and because I did that, they would go, well, my, you know, this guy can back it up, you know, and, and you almost get lifted up for it. You don't, you don't get someone going, are you okay? Um, there was this mentality of like, my God, he, he can do both. The reality is I really needed help, but I just hid it from everybody. And um, it's actually one of the, the things I'm most kind of passionate about now within trying with the book and professional sport is, is breaking down these barriers, you know, where 
mental health and addiction issues are just on an exponential rise in our society, you know, in, and in particularly in elite environments. And a lot of it boils down to this misunderstanding of, of behavior and balance and, and, and how we're protecting people. And, and I think I, I didn't let anybody help me until I absolutely broke down. But I'd love to be able to create an environment or be a voice that if someone could hear it, they'd go, do you know what, that's like me. And maybe I just need to check what I'm doing here. Um, but we'll see. You say that you had friends that let you, you let them in and you ended up going to the Priory. But even then you were slightly misaligned with what you were actually thinking. You thought you were only going to be there for about seven days. Is that right? <laughs> I know. It's really embarrassing. I just, I just had this like really low self-esteem, but massive ego. And I just, you know, even when they brought up, you know, I had a sort of old school intervention as such. And even when they brought up the fact that, you know, they booked an appointment for me at the Priory. I was just like, what are they going to do for me? I just thought I was a bit better than everybody else. It was, it's really, you know, I look back on it and cringe so much now. I think, oh, um, and then, yeah, I was told it was a 28 day process. And I was like, well, I'm a professional sportsman, so I'll get this done in seven. You know, I just thought that that's honestly where I was at. And I just, and even when I was there, I didn't even know why I was there. I knew, I, I know that sounds bonkers, but um, I knew that I had, you know, some, some difficulties with my behavior, but I had a long list of reasons why that was happening, you know, a long list of excuses. So when I, I remember someone saying to me, why are you here? I was like, I, I don't know. Um, I think I need to sort some, you know, I need some counseling to sort out my marriage, which is pushing me to do this, you know, the pressure from my business partner, you know, all these different reasons. And then little was I to discover the longer I stayed that actually the reason I was there and the problem was me and I needed to work on me. Um, and that was a real eye-opener for me. Yeah, I think that being able to, like you said, you've told yourself so often that you've been able to hide it. Like, how has it suddenly been exposed to people? <laughs> how has it been allowed yeah. to be exposed? To the yeah. point where you've probably completely convinced yourself anyway. Totally. Yeah. Deluded in denial, you know, and, and, you know, the, that, that thing that it's not your fault and you've, it's a pattern of behavior, you know, that you've, you've grooved for a long time and basically taking a real lack of responsibility for, for the problems that are happening in your life and it's everyone else's fault. But, you know, that's, that's the joy of kind of recovery and learning and working on yourself that you, you discover all those things. You also mentioned, and I say this because I think so many people believe this that this was never part of life's plan this was not meant to happen you speak about that but you also talk about how if life changed then you'd feel better that life had burnt you out and it was almost nothing to do with you what was the what was the realization that actually you started taking responsibility and ownership of what you were doing to yourself yeah, you've described that really well, actually. That, that's ex exactly where I was at. I was always like, had this, this feeling that just over the corner or just, just, just over the little hill, things will get better. I, I, you know, or, or this will sort itself out, or, you know, or this will happen. And um, it was like, it's once described to me as being like, you're the director of the play and you just need everyone to listen to you and then, then everything will work out. And then when it doesn't work out, it's like, well, everyone didn't listen to me properly. And it's kind of that, that thing. And that what, what happens within that dynamic is you just, you don't take any responsibility. And I, I just think in, whilst I was in, in the Priory, you know, the first week was a bit of a blur and I was, you know, 
at my own bottom with my own self-importance. And then the fog started to clear. You know, I, I kind of was eating better. I was sleeping better. The therapists in there were exceptional. There's one guy particularly um, who was just, uh, it may changed my life. And he just was able to get through to me and kind of, and he was harsh on me, really harsh and prodded me at times and got a reaction from me. But he just kept going and, you know, like it, it, looking at things and taking up certain scenarios that happened in my life. And yeah, I had a massive uh, tragedy in my life. You know, my, my girlfriend died in a car crash. And that was this thing that I held with me that it was like, well, life had burnt me. You know, life did this to me. And what he did, uh, his name was Jonathan, actually. I think I've, I've, that's the first time I've ever, his, his name is Richard in the book, but Jonathan, he went, it's fine. He, he said to me, yes, that did happen to you in life, but your choice has been that you've carried it with you for the rest of your life. You've not tried to make peace with it. You're not, you're raging with it and you're carrying it with it and it's affecting every single other thing in your life. And that's a choice that you're not choosing to address it. And that was a big thing for me. You know, he was basically the biggest, tragic, hardest thing in my life up to that point. He was basically saying to me, if you want to get some peace with it, it's up to you. And, and I was like, no, it's up to the world. And it was that switch of responsibility. And suddenly I got this kind of glimpse of what he was talking about. And I was like, all right, I see. This is work I have to do. And when it started to switch around and I realized that I was the problem, it just so much fell into place, you know, and, and, and I kind of, he was always saying to me, listen, your starting point is on you. What are you doing? What's your responsibility? And when I got to that place, it felt like then I could deal with everything else that previously I was just raging at the world for. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. I mean, you talk about also that your greatest strengths, you realize are your greatest weaknesses. And I think for anyone, if you've been, so adamant in what you're doing and you feel like it's absolutely right that realization of oh i wasn't completely right all the time it takes yeah. a while to process it might be a, a switch at the beginning to almost that phrase comes into your head but the process of really understanding that and thinking oh i wasn't always exactly <laughs> correct yeah and it's okay that that's okay you know there's that sort of thing you hold on to not just that i'm always right but i must be right because if I'm not, then it kind of shows vulnerability. And yeah, the realization that, A, I haven't been getting this right entirely. Not, you know, it doesn't mean like I've been getting everything wrong. And that's okay. I'm human and I'm growing and I'm fallible. And, and, and it's just the humility, I think, that, that has to come in. What was the one thing that you took away from the Priory that you felt is with you for life? Oh, wow. That's a very good question. That... I think I, I came out of the Priory and realized that I wanted to change my life and I wanted to change how I lived my life and be a better person, be a better man and, and father, son, friend. And it, but it was up to me. That, that's what it was. It was up to me. You know, what was I going to do? It yeah. wasn't about life treating me better. It was about me working on myself and, and going with the flow of life. And and I definitely got that. Jonathan really drilled into me. It's like, it's up to you. This is in your hands. And I, I guess that light bulb came on and I was like, okay, this is in my, my hands as to what I, and I had an awful long way to go. And even now, you know, eight and a half years on or whatever, I still want to work on myself. I still need to work on myself and keep moving forward. And, 
And I, when I came out of the Priory, I had a long, long way to go, you know, a long way, a lot of stuff to sort out and to work through. But I, I guess the biggest thing was it's in my hands. I need to do this. Yeah. I saw an interview with you back in March about how you were sort of taught you just need to do the next right thing at any given moment. I think that's really good for anyone, anyone who's doing any form of goal setting or doing anything in their life. It's okay, forget the past, whatever it is, it just needs to be the right thing next time. Yeah, and it it helps you become more present, you know, because you're not thinking about six steps forward. You can, you know, don't don't get me wrong, I love a good plan and a good, uh, I love a good budget and all that is a good spreadsheet, but but it, it brings me back to when I just concentrate on doing the next right thing, I just, it reminds me that life, life goes on. You know, we, we at times believe we're in control of everything and golly, Corona has really, you know, given people a shock about that, you know, and we're very important in the world. And if I do this, this will happen. And the reality is I just go, you know, I'm actually just a a man. I'm just, I want to be a good dad and a, a, a good husband and, and if I just keep doing the next right thing in each day, so what's the most important thing now? What's the most important thing now? Keep doing the next right thing. I stay present. I don't get wrapped up in what may or may not happen. I also don't get wrapped up in what has happened previously. I just have to do the next right thing. It's such a simple concept, but it was miles away from my thinking. Um, and I just, it, yeah, it, I'm glad you saw that interview because that's a really important thing for me nowadays. Yeah, I mean, it actually was really enjoyable to watch in terms of, it felt comfortable. It felt a little bit like your book, really. You just very open. You could see the compassion that you had for the people that looked after you at the Priory, but also then back to you, the sort of care that they had. And it was really lovely to watch. So how do you feel now that you've your business now is your primary focus, obviously, as well as the, the books? How do you feel your leadership style has changed between what you were doing before and how it is now? Yeah. Um, well, I was very much, you know, a leader who said kind of do what I say, do what I do and you'll be okay. You know, it, it was very much kind of, if everyone could just be a bit more like me, I, I know, I mean, I, as I'm saying this, I'm cringing inwardly because I know what a prat I sound, but that was, you know, I was kind of like, if everyone just does everything like I do, it will all be fine. And I think I'm a very different leader now, you know, within, and management is a great test of this because you're, you're, of, of you know trying to make a client behave like how you would like them to behave it's a, there's a real test of control of what where you're at with it but now I, i'm i'm very different i i know everybody's different i don't i don't know you know i have good experience i feel like i've got good knowledge in certain areas but i also acknowledge that other people have better knowledge and better experience in certain areas and um, and everybody's different. People are triggered by different things. People are motivated by different things. Some, you know, everyone needs to be listened to and heard and understood. And I think now as a leader, I try and be that person, you know, and understand those dynamics. It's not like, okay, everyone, you're coming with me. I'm going to force us through this, whether you like it or not. It's kind of being a leader of example and, and saying, I understand everybody. Um, I'm not going to ask anyone to do something that I wouldn't do. Um, but let people be their own person and have their own responsibility and, and allow them to succeed and fail and don't, you know, beat them up for it. Just allow people to grow and and move with you. And and that's just a very different approach to what I was before. Life has come 
full circle for you a little bit now, hasn't it? Being able to sort of impart your experience and wisdom to other people who are going through very similar experiences that that you did. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, people in professional sport and, and to be honest, and my experience is professional sport, but since my book came out, I've had lots and lots of people contact me from, you know, different industries um, who are all and, and completely relate to a lot of what I've said in it, you know, that of, of trying to achieve and move forward in life. I think it, it doesn't really matter what walk of life you're in, but for professional sports people, you know, they're often very young, you know, they're young um, in the, in the age, sort of age spectrum of life, you know, and they are suddenly in highly pressurized situations and they are exceptional at what they do. And they live in a very false world uh, that has been there for them since they were maybe 16 years old, 14 years old. And, and, and I think nowadays it's, it's as pressurized as it's ever been. Social media has changed the complexion of how information and judgment and affirmation is shared in an instant. And, um, so it's, it, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to say because people say, listen, if you're a professional sports person, you're probably quite well paid. You're, you're in a privileged position. Absolutely. I get it. That's, that's totally true. But there are a lot of pitfalls for people as well. And, um, you know, as much as I want clients nowadays to be, I want them to win Olympic gold medals. I want them to gain everything they can out of their careers. I also want them to be healthy. I want them to be happy. And I want them to be able to move on past their careers and not just spit them out and kind of go next. I don't want that. You know, it doesn't sit right with me anymore. I want them to, to go on and live a really happy life. And those two things, winning and having a happy life, are not mutually exclusive. We're, we're led to believe at times that they are. They're not. It's, it's, it's a myth. And um, that's a real passion of mine now it's really refreshing to hear and pretty rare in an industry that is so competitive like sports. So I imagine that they're probably very grateful for your mentorship. Uh, what would you say is that you're most proud of? Um, my children, you know, I know it's a bit, a bit cliche, but no, my children and, 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 you know, and my relationship now, I, I mean, I know I'm very cliche, but I do, I, I'm really, proud of my kids my stepkids and, and my relationship with my fiance now I, you know what else, whatever happens else in life in business in um you know all, all, what, what, i don't know what house we live in and all that kind of stuff it's it's by the by for me i think you know how how my kids are growing up how and i'm including my stepkids in that um how i am as a father and how i am as a with my relationship with my fiance, I, that, that, that means more to me than, than anything right now. And I think it, when those things are good, everything else flows out from it. Well, we're nearly coming to the end of the interview. Um, I've got a few fun questions for you. <laughs> so lighten the load as we go on. Um, okay, so what is your nickname? Uh, yes, um, I think predominantly Suts. But I was Duke. The, uh, I was often referred to as the Duke, uh, Luke Duke from Dukes of Hazard, and uh, yeah, the Duke. I was going to ask you where the Duke came from. Yeah, I saw that. What are you currently reading? I oh golly, I'm not actually reading anything at the moment. I I need to get a good book. So <laughs> I did. I read I, I, one of the most powerful books for me ever. Actually, has been Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now, which is a is a I don't know if, if you've read it, but it's, it's, a, it's a big book. 
And I actually read it again recently, which, and it's, it's one of those sorts of books that takes you a few weeks to recover from. So I haven't picked up another book since that. Yes, um, I, I can tell you, don't listen to the audio and drive because you go into a trance. <laughs> <That's all laughs> yeah. um, best piece of advice you've ever been given? We might have already discussed this. Yeah, it's a difficult one. Um, yeah, do the next right thing. Just in any, in any area of life you're in, just, just do the next right thing. What was the first thing that you did this morning? Kiss my fiance. And your mission in life is? Happiness. Happiness and um, just to be a good human. And finally, what has being so driven given you? Well, it's given me options and freedom, you know, and I think um, that, don't get me wrong, I, I know I sound a bit like a hippie at times, and I guess I am, but I'm also, I'm also a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ambitious and I, I drive forward and I, I want to do really well financially and uh, in different ways. It means different things to me nowadays, but what it does give you is freedom, you know, freedom and options to travel and you know, I love spending time with my family and, and the, the more financial rewards I get, the more time I've got to do that. So, um, yeah, it's definitely freedom and options. Nick Sutton, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your knowledge. It's been a real pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. I find Luke's story intriguing, not because it's necessarily unusual, in fact, sadly, the opposite, but it takes a leader like Luke to be vulnerable, to open up. And now he has clarity exposed himself so that others can take solace in knowing that they might not be alone, that it's okay to get help, that strength comes from reaching out. It is all too familiar in everyday life to look at someone who leads a team, who appears confident, who carries the weight of a group, to write them off as being mentally able to cope with everything. The likelihood is they have the same fears and worries, the same problems as you. They are just an expert in hiding them. And like Luke, with his excessive drinking, there will always be an output and often it won't be in any way serving them. A few key tips from today. Number one, back when he was playing cricket, Luke felt he was always a leader and describes his attributes as a self-confessed pain, always wanting to win, relentless, consistently wanting to drive people forward, ruthless, extremely intense at times, a consistent need to push forward. He always made sure he put himself in a position to potentially be captain. He is a thinker and enjoyed the tactics of the game. In terms of leadership for Luke, how you play the game is how you are tactically. Yes, when you are able to think deeply, when you are able to work out the tactics, plan ahead, that can be the difference from winning and losing, from success and failure, from being a memorable leader or an insignificant one. Whatever space you are in, you need to have the space to stand up. Number two, Luke's view on success now is almost in opposition to what was represented to him in his past life. He saw it as a status to feel good about himself, to win, to be right, to look good and be on top. But those feelings of success were fleeting. They never felt like they were enough. So then on to the next. He was a leader that prides himself on do what I do and you will be okay. 
Now he understands that everyone is different. He knows that even though he has good experience and knowledge in certain areas, that other people have better knowledge and experience in other areas, that people need to be heard and to be listened to. He now focuses on being a leader of example and not to ask anyone to do something that he hasn't either done himself or wouldn't do. He believes that people should be who they are, take responsibility and allow them to succeed, fail, grow in their own way. Number three, Luke's work hard, play hard mentality and lifestyle reached a crescendo in 2011. He didn't let anyone help him until he was at breaking point. And that is why he is so passionate to reduce the ever rising numbers of mental health issues, especially in the sporting world. Anyone that struggles with these problems are a master at hiding them. As Luke says, that's how they survive. He would go out and drink till the early hours of the morning and come into work on time and be on it, almost getting praised for what seems on the outside to be nailing both the professional and the fun side of his career. The reality is he needed help, but he was such a master at this game, he could hide it from everyone. His focus now is to be a voice, to create an environment that if someone could relate, they might just check in with themselves and hopefully reach out. Number four, taking responsibility was a big part of Luke's recovery in the Priory. Realising he was the problem was a game changer. And that is when this all started to fall into place for him and he could deal with his problems. It's funny how our primal brain is there to protect us and keep us safe. So as humans, we often fall into the trap of seeing something that we don't like about ourselves, about our current situation, and immediately look to blame others, the outside world. Why? Because for us, it's comfortable. It means that we are keeping ourselves safe from having to take any responsibility, take action, take ownership. Quite frankly, it's just easy. However, this will always create a negative effect in your life. You will stay stagnant and blame the world. When you take responsibility for your actions, you take back the power you felt you lost. It can be scary. It can be uncomfortable and painful at times. But you are back in control of your life. Luke left the Priory wanting to change, but he knew this time it was up to him. He had to take responsibility. Number five. Luke now concentrates on doing the next right thing. A tip from him I have taken since our call and used frequently. Understanding what is the most important thing to you now keeps you present and grounds you on what is most important. And for Luke, that is being a family man. Having that saying in the forefront of his mind doesn't get him wrapped up in what may or may not happen, but also what happened previously. He just has to do the next right thing. Number six, and finally, we are led to believe that winning and having a happy life are mutually exclusive, and that simply isn't true. For the sports people and personalities Luke mentors, he wants them to win. He wants them to gain what they can out of their career, but he also wants them to be healthy and happy and wants them to move on to a purpose-filled life afterwards. Being so driven for Luke has ultimately given him his freedom. Well, that's almost it from me today. Although I wanted to leave you with a couple of actionables. Number one, maybe just take a look around you. Maybe there is someone that you see every day. Maybe they care for you. Maybe you work into them. Maybe they're your coach or your mentor. You know the person. 
the type that always seems strong and on it. And just check in with them, ask them how they're doing, and most importantly, listen. Number two, if you found that you've been having the same old problems for a while, ask yourself why that is. Who are you blaming for this problem? And how can you start taking responsibility for it? I'm telling you, it's not always easy or simple to admit, but it is a game changer. Okay, that's it from me for today. Thank you so much to my wonderful guest, Luke Sutton. You can get all of Luke's details on my podcast page on my website, including where to buy his book, which I highly recommend. I promise you, you will be hooked from the beginning. So go to www.serenadod.com forward slash podcast. That's www.serenadod.com forward slash podcast. And you will find all the details there. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please go over to the Apple podcast, rate it and leave an honest review. I'm giving away my 30 day goal setting program, Mission 30, to one lucky winner each week. So leave a rate and review on the podcast. Head over to my website, click Ask Serena and let me know that you've done it. I will pick a winner each week to join the program. If you have any questions on this podcast or would like to recommend anyone to be interviewed by me, then go over to my podcast page again, click Ask Serena and I will get back to you. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. I hope you are taking lead of your day and making it so driven. Bye.